Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins and I'm delighted you could join us. This is the podcast that refuses to believe that deep, radical, transformative, regenerative change is not possible and believes that we can still create an incredible world, but that we need to dream it first. And we need to dream it together. You could say that our key aim here at From What If to What Next is to create longing and to create a deep and heartfelt longing for the future. And imagination is central to that. Here, nothing is impossible. In this episode, we're exploring a what-if question sent in by Patreon subscriber Chris Wells, who asked, what if we treated people at the end of their lives with the same reverence, love and care as we do at the beginning of their lives? This felt like such a deeply pertinent and beautiful question, especially during this time of the coronavirus. We've observed here in the UK a government focusing its attentions, such as they were, on the NHS and leaving care homes to their own devices, causing huge stress, suffering and unnecessary deaths among older and more vulnerable people. Many people have experienced an end to their lives that was traumatic and lonely, unable to even bid farewell to their loved ones or only able to do so via an iPad. For many of our older people, their final days are diminished by mass underfunding, inadequate training, appallingly low levels of pay and high staff turnover, especially in the public sector. COVID-19 has been, as Arundhati Roy puts it, like an MRI scan of our societies, highlighting their inadequacies, their inequalities, their toxic polarities. So what if, as our question asks, we treated people at the end of their lives with the same reverence, love and care as we do at the beginning of their lives? What would it be like to live in a world in which care for our elders ran through society and people were able to live the last part of their lives surrounded by care, love and community and to then die deaths of dignity and respect? How different would the world be and how different would it feel? To join me in asking these questions are two people who have given these questions a lot of thought. Mike Grenville is an independent funeral celebrant and dying doula. He runs workshops on death and dying, including dying to talk sessions. He's also a member of the Home Funeral Network, supporting all aspects of funerals, including home funerals. Involved in the transition movement since its early days, he helped to establish a transition initiative in Forest Row, the Transition Camp, and was editor of the Transition Network newsletter. He currently lives in Froome, where he is a member of Sustainable Froome. And Mary Nally is speaking to us today from Summerhill in County Meath in the Republic of Ireland. And she's the founder of Third Age. She has a long background in nursing. She trained in paediatrics and general nursing, worked for 11 years in long-stay hospitals for older people, and experienced the letter to realise that deep change was needed in how we cared for older people, especially their relationship to the community. And so 32 years ago, when her mother came to live with her in a place where all there was for old people to do was to play bingo, but her mother hated bingo, she decided that something else was needed. And that idea evolved into third aid. So we're delighted to, to have both of you here and Mary I'm sure will tell us much more about the story of Third Age and what it does. So you're both really really welcome here to From What If to What Next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Rob. So I'd like to invite you both and to you listening wherever you are to get comfortable and to close your eyes and I'd like you to imagine that we're 10 years in the future. The 10 years between 2020 and 2030 were a time of the most remarkable and historic transition. 
Change that in 2020 felt unimaginable suddenly became commonplace within a very short period of time. New institutions were created, new values were cherished, a new culture emerged, policy making, finance, values and possibility converged. It was a phenomenal time that is now much celebrated. I'd like you to imagine that we now live in a world in which, indeed, we now treat people at the end of their lives with the same reverence, love and care as we do at the beginning of their lives. I'd like you to walk us through a day in the life in that world. What's it like? What do you see? What do you hear? Can you describe it to us? Mike? Perhaps I'd like to start by saying that end of life is not just about old people anyway. As with most things, where do you start? Because the story of life is a, is a connected string. So it's hard to know where the point is that you start from. If we want old people or uh, older people to be treated with respect, then that doesn't begin with older people. It's a whole life question that we're asking. How do we treat people at different ages? And I think we've become so disconnected from the future and the past that we only care about what happens now. And so a world of the future would be one of connection. It would be one where elder people would be intimately connected with young people. We wouldn't have nurseries separate from old people's homes. They would be naturally close together. This world would be one where people would not be afraid of dying as though somehow it was a failure. This would be a world where people would die with their legal affairs in order. 60% of people die in the United Kingdom without a will. I have many personal experiences of knowing people who knew they were dying of cancer, for example, and still never signed their will. So this would be a world where the D word, currently we have, I think, over 200 euphemisms to describe death and dying. This would be a world where we would not be frightened of endings, where endings would have their proper place in the cycle of life. It would have its proper place in everything that we do. We wouldn't be able to buy a salad pack that we would eat in one meal that would be wrapped in a plastic bag that would take a thousand years to decompose. Our ability to face endings would affect everything. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Mary? Going forward, I would love to have less nursing homes because they seem to be getting bigger and bigger with more people in them. And I think it would be just lovely if we could have smaller places within their own community or else if they could remain within their own homes for longer. I mean, it's the wish of a lot of people to die within their own homes, in their own bed, where they would have neighbours and friends around them. How can we do that? We can do that if we put proper supports in place, giving people the dignity, dignity at the end of life, while nursing homes are lovely and can be very good and there's a time and place for them. But they're just, there are a lot of them being built at the moment and they seem to be getting bigger and bigger, 100, 
200 people within a nursing home to remain connected, as Mike said. It's so important. It can be difficult for some people to visit older people uh, in a nursing home. Transport can be an issue. But if you're living in the community, if you're there with the older person, it can make such a difference to their lives. And I would love to see that happening. Thank you. So um, I wonder if uh, I might just start by asking you both to tell us a bit more about your work and about what you do. Mary, could you tell us a bit more about Third Age and, 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 and what, it, what it does? We have a lot of projects and we have volunteers, but our older people are volunteering. I mean, I knew all the time that, you know, some people suffer from loneliness isolation. And how can we combat that? What can we do? I come up with the idea of setting up a helpline, a helpline for older people, but it's manned by older people who have the time to listen, who can listen knowing and realising, yes, I know what that's like. I know what that feels like. That was 25 years ago, set up what we call Senior Helpline. It's Senior Line now, we've just changed the name. People call us for many reasons. Um, loneliness, isolation. They may have a worry they'd like to share, and they do. And it's amazing all the things that you will discuss and that they haven't discussed with anybody else, but the fact that it's another older person at the other end of the line. It makes a difference. All of our volunteers are trained to listen. And uh, it's gone from strength to strength. And especially at this time now with the pandemic, people have been scared and feeling very lonely because they're unable to have any visitors. Another project, Ireland Change, 16, nearly 20 years ago now, with our new communities from all the different countries like Poland, Lithuania and beyond. I was in my local supermarket one day and just bearing in mind, I live in a little village and I saw a young mother and she had two little children and it was very evident that she was unable to read the package that she had in her hand. So I thought, that's another form of isolation. Mm-hmm. And I could see the frustration in her face. So I went back to third age and sat down with the older people. And I told them what I had seen. And I said, what can we do? We have to do something. We have to help this young mother. And there are so many more people like her. And uh, we decided that we would teach conversational English. We went around and the people who were employing them, we told them about that we were going to open our doors and invite those people in and teach conversational English and to encourage migrants to come in. And in doing that, we'd also help them to integrate into our communities. It was 15 years ago. We opened our doors and it went from strength to strength. So many people turned up. It was unbelievable. And then we decided we had to extend it, expand it. There again, it's 
the expertise. It's tapping into that, you know, older people. We have so much to offer. I'm an older person now myself. We have so much to offer, so much to give, so much to give to society. You know, we shouldn't be written off just because we're older, just because we're 70 or 80 or whatever. Age doesn't matter. We still can give back and give to society and to our communities. And that's what we're doing in third age. We have other projects as well. And of course, socials and outings and all of that. But it's tapping into that huge resource that older people have. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Uh, And Mike, uh, uh, so tell us a bit more about what you do. I'm an independent funeral celebrant. So that means that I'm not attached to any particular way of doing things as a for arranging a funeral my preference when arranging a funeral is to if it's possible if people can think out of the box is to have the family involved as much as possible ideally one would even be involved before the person has died and one would be supporting that family before the person has died when they die and engaging the family into looking after the the body of the person who has died, not having it whisked away by a funeral director. I know that Mary will have a very different experience in Ireland, but in England, it's it's quite different. Um, The families are much less involved and bodies are are rarely left um, at home. It's a more unusual thing. I remember once cycling along and saw a big sign outside a funeral director's and it said 24 hour service what that says that this is a, a death phobic society because they want the body taken away in the middle of the night immediately that somebody has died. So my approach is completely the opposite to get the people to be involved as much as possible into the whole process. The other aspect of uh, what I do is called dying to talk. And it's really a, a circle for people to talk and to be heard about their death story because so many people come and say that nobody wants to hear their story. Nobody wants to hear them. So this creates a space for people who all have different stories, but begin to find their commonality in that by being, for the first time, often really heard. We run workshops at festivals, and we have them as an open space, or we have them around specific topics, which might be, for example, around choosing to die in all of the different aspects that that would be, or it might be around dead babies or stillbirth or or dead children and so on, which is a whole topic in itself. And the doula work that you mentioned, we don't really have a culture in England of really involving other people. When somebody is dying, everything collapses down until only the immediate tightest family are allowed anywhere near this situation. And I remember once listening to a talk by Stephen Jenkinson, who I've learned a great deal from, and he, he said that there was a, a form that you had to fill in when you went into a, a hospital in, in North America, I think, or Canada, maybe. It's a tick box, cultural issues, it would say, and it was a tick box. And what it means is that the person who is dying is Mexican or Native American or Indian, Asian, something like that. And it's going to be a frigging nightmare because the world and its aunt and all of their cousins and children are going to want to come and be there 24 hours while this person dies instead of the way that we do it properly here is that only the tightest, closest relatives will be allowed anywhere near the hospital. The culture that we have, which is a death phobic culture, 
the poison of that is evident in the whole way that we think. Dying is not something passive and it's not something that is only connected with death mm. and and i might mike you talked about a death phobic society i wonder how how does that manifest in society do you think and in the larger challenges that we face if we if we were more at peace with the idea of death and dying how would wider society change do you think well i think that we would be more at home with endings in all of their forms I think I mentioned briefly earlier the idea that we we buy a lettuce that we'll eat in one meal in a bag that will last a thousand years. This is a death phobic society because it has no connection. It has no sense of responsibility to the future because dying is a responsibility to the future. Do we want all of our grandparents and great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-great-grandparents still to be alive? I don't think so. And yet we pretend as though we are never going to die. And the things that we do in life don't have an impact on future generations. We don't behave as though our future generations depend and benefit from what we do now. We, we behave as though it doesn't matter how much oil we burn. It doesn't matter how much trash we put into the ground. It doesn't matter anything that we do doesn't matter because we've become disconnected. And, you know, Mary talks about respect for, for elder people, but we don't have respect for previous generations and we don't feel a responsibility to subsequent generations. So that's one way in which a culture that could accept death would have that respect for the past and have that sense of responsibility to the future. Mary, your work has focused in part on bringing older people back into society, keeping them active and contributing to the life of the community. While I imagine listeners will be able to understand how that can beneficially impact the people themselves, how does it impact the wider community around them? What knock-on benefits do you see? Of course, it has a lot of benefits. Within the community, they're helping they're doing things in the community. They're doing things for themselves. They're remaining very independent, which means that they don't have to ask relatives or friends for help. They can do it themselves for as long as possible. And this can have a, a huge impact on a community. Just take, for instance, our little village here in Summerhill. When we started inviting in people from different nationalities, we could see the difference, the change. We were helping those people to integrate. This is having a, a huge impact on the community. Just taking that one project, and we call it Faultis Jock, which means welcome in. As I say, it started just in the village here in Summerhill. Now we have 130 centres nationally. Mm. And... We've also gone into Europe as well with it. We've got to uh, engage with older people. We've mm -hmm. got to, like, I love intergenerational projects, like teaching knitting to the children in our local school, you know, older people going in. And it's not even about the art of knitting. It's the chatting, it's the engaging. It's <laughs> the, you know, there's so much that we can give but that the children can give to us as well, because we're learning. We go into the school. It's completely different now than when I was going to school. You know, so we're, we're learning all the time. And that's to be welcomed. 
And and uh, what's emerging signs or initiatives, apart from the work that you're both involved in, give you hope at the moment? Where do you see in 2020 the green shoots of a different culture around uh, how we care for older people in our society, Mary? Yeah, I'd love to say that <laughs> I can see uh, green shoots, but I suppose with the pandemic and all of that and funding is going to be an issue. But Looking to the future, we've got to bring about change. We've got to invest in community care for our older people. It was terrible, you know, what happened to our older people in long-stay facilities during the pandemic. I would hate to see that happening again. And maybe our government have learned a lesson from this. We really need politicians. We really need a government. We really need our Department of Health to bring along about change. But we need it rapidly. There will be huge changes now after the pandemic. But I hope that older people will be prioritised as well. We need to be listened to. You know, a lot of... Older people are leading very healthy, active lives. And that's to be commended. I think it's brilliant. But we want that to remain. We need encouragement. And, and I'd love to see that happening. So maybe there'll be green shoots, uh, Rob. Um, and I'd love to say, yeah, that in 10 years' time, that we, you know, we'll arrive there. But that's a wish. And it's a wish of a lot of older people. Thank you. And Mike, do you see any green shoots? And if so, where are they and what are they? We're at a very interesting point of time with this pandemic where so many, as Mary has just said, so many people have had to die on their own in hospital without anyone being allowed to visit them and so on. This is a, a cultural trauma that is happening everywhere. Now, I'll come back to the green shoots in, in a moment, but I think that 100 years ago, we had the flu pandemic. And I think that a similar thing would have happened then. And I think that happened also just after the First World War, uh, which was also death on a scale which people had not experienced before. They had no knowledge in those days of post-traumatic stress or how to deal with it. The general way of how to deal with it was not to talk about it. This is how the, our society became death phobic. So we had that trauma of the First World War and the flu pandemic and not talk about it. And that cultural behavior of how to deal with mass trauma of, of mass death went into their children who were roughly in the Second World War. My parents, both of whom clammed up and neither of whom would talk about their experiences in the war. And then at the end of the Second World War, we had a marvelous thing that happened in this country, which was the birth of the National Health Service. But it had two other side effects, one which was to take both birth and death out of the community into the hands of institutions and professionals. And I think all of these stories together, and there's some other aspects we could we have time to talk about, but I think have contributed to this phobia in society. Now, we're at the point today where we could potentially have a similar trauma happening, but the world is very different from 100 years ago. We have the technology that we're using now. Two thirds of the planet have mobile phones and are connected. So knowledge and information is shared around the world. So we have a great deal of knowledge of how to 
how to heal. We have massage therapies. We have talking therapies. We have psychotherapies of all sorts of different kinds of therapies and, and ways in which we can heal each other. And we also have the ability to, to gather collectively and to, and to share ideas collectively and say, we want this to be different now. And it may be that the opportunity that I see now is to say that the way that we've allowed this to happen and the way we've allowed people to die isolated and so on and that we need to now engage in the process of dying and death and dying and really become more involved in it rather than being more and more frightened of it we can understand it better and then we can see that the potential is to have it in its right place in life that the cycle of life is birth maturity death compost and create the space for renewal. And that is how life functions over millennium again and again. And that's the, the thing that we've missed. That's the opportunity now is that this could be a wake up call. The cycle of life and death and our engagement in it could become forefront. It won't happen on its own, but that's the opportunity. Thank you. And I wonder if, if people listening to this want to change this, they want to start to be, to catalyze a move in this direction in their community right now, what would your suggestions be to them? Where should they, where should they start? We were all leading very busy lives up until now. The pandemic has really slowed us down. I feel that while it was terrible, you know, what happened and so many deaths and all of that. But maybe by slowing us down, we now have time to talk to people, to get to know our neighbours. Who are our neighbours? Because we were all rushing hither and hither, we just didn't have a minute to stop and to barely say hello. So maybe this is a starting point now that we can slow down within our communities, get to know our community, get to know our neighbours. I know that Ireland is a lot smaller than, than England, but at the same time, you know, rushing out the door just to say hello, how are you, can make a difference to somebody, to smile. And I think we can start there. I would get people to start thinking about the language that they use, because the language, the words that we use are very powerful. We, we, we say that the correct arrangement of letters is spelling. And what that implies is that words create spells. So the, the words that we use create the story that we have around something. For example, I've talked several times about the use of euphemisms instead of the word death and dying. But there's another word that we use when somebody dies. We say, I'm sorry for your loss. You lose your keys. <laughs> you get lost in a maze. Losing somebody when they die is not true for every culture. It's something that our culture teaches us, that when they're dead, they're dead and gone. That's taught to us. We don't realise because it's taught to us invisibly. No one sits you down at school and says, when they die, they're dead and gone. But that's what we behave as. We behave as they're dead and gone. And so thinking about the language that we use around death would be, would be the place to start. 
Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a delightful, fascinating, uh, stimulating conversation. And I'm very, very grateful to you both for, for joining me here today. Thank you, Rob. And it was lovely to get to know you, Mike, also. Thank you. And you, Mary. Thank you. And Rob. Thank you. So my thanks to Ben Adicott for sound production and theme music and to everyone who subscribes to this podcast at patreon.com and to everyone who has sent in their what-if questions. See you next time. We'll be right back.